0: And indeed, that is the story that we are telling. It is God's story. And I don't want you to think that the fact that we use the word story means somehow that it is one of these uh, Hollywood stories where they say in the midst of the story or at the beginning of the end, they'll say, you know, based loosely on real life events or something like that. You know they're taking liberties with it. You don't know if that character was a part of it or if that actually happened, based loosely on real life events what we are talking about here today is a story but it is a true story it is the story of events that actually happened they correspond with things historically that took place and not only do we have the story but we know what the story means You say well how would you know that and philosophers say that's your epistemology right how do you know what you claim to be true is actually true and our basis for this story is the word of god the bible is god's written revelation to us it tells us not only what happened but it tells us why it happened and what it means so that we can interpret events from god's perspective and understand them from the story And of course, we are uh, here this weekend. We're we're living culturally in a weekend where uh, a story is dominating all the news, right? A very famous story, uh, Star Wars. Theater's filling with people going to see the movie Star Wars. And some of us grew up with Star Wars, and uh, I have not seen the new one, Force Awakens yet, but I've seen the trailers. And there's one line in the trailer so appropriate to what we're talking about where uh, Han Solo is asked, is it true? And his reply is, it's true. And he says it with all that sort of seriousness that, uh, that he can. It's true. All of it. The dark side. The Jedi. They're real. Now, we have to ask ourselves if we should believe the truth claims from a character who is himself Fictional. Right? you know. So uh, should, I, should I believe what he is saying when he's not real himself? And there's a reason Star Wars is found in the fiction section of the library, as much as some people sort of act like it is actually true. For a story to be true, it has to describe events and people as they actually were. And this story that God is telling us in God's Word is... Describing events and people as they actually were and this story addresses the questions and the yearnings of the human heart like who are we? Where do we come from and why are we here? And why do I have these deep longings in my heart that are so difficult to satisfy and Where am I going? What is my destiny? What is my future all of these? yearnings that we have and our core to human nature no matter when in history or where in the world you go the story answers those questions exactly there is alignment between the longing of my heart and the story that God has told and is telling and will tell in the future and this story God says does have the story to utterly transform who we are not just intellectually but personally and spiritually to transform us if we allow God's story to be our story, the one that we believe in. And as we've been telling the story here in the month of December, we began back in chapter 1 with creation. And we saw in, in that chapter that everything begins with God, this tri-unified God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, that are so closely uh fellowshipping that the bible says there is one god and yet there are three persons in this and that's a mystery we don't understand but that's what the bible says is what god is like and i'm not surprised that there's things about god that i can't understand how about you right if we struggle with the latin in the song in the first song how much more should we maybe think you know there's gonna be things about god i don't co- totally get i'm okay with that i'm okay with a little mystery. Well the Bible tells us that this God love from love within that trinity overflowed in a desire to create an expression of their love. Just like lovers do, right? They write notes and they write poems and they write songs out of love. And God out of love decided to create something as an expression of their love. And so he created the universe. There must be a lot of love if the expression of the love is the universe around us. Would you agree? And so we look into the universe and we see vastness and we see unity and we see symmetry and harmony and we see, uh, you know, uh, galactic balance and atomic balance and to realize the Bible says, yeah, that's all about us. That's all describing, reflecting what we are like, like the moon reflects the sun and tells us what the sun is like by looking at the moon. We look at creation and we see what God is like and what their love for one another is like. The same story says that when God created, he made one thing unique in all of the universe. When he made Adam and Eve, he made the human beings more reflective of what he is like than anything else. Like you could add up all of the universe, put all of it together, and it doesn't tell us as much about what God is like as uh, one single human being. Why? Because we look at a human being, and I don't have to know you personally to know what is true about you. You are relational, right? You like, you want to have a relationship with other people. You're you're like wired relationally. You are uh, spiritual. You have a thing in your heart that longs to connect with something greater than you. I know that to be true about you. And you're moral, You are moral, and even the most immoral person here right now retains a certain moral quality. You look in the world, and you see human trafficking, and you see children being uh, abused or whatever, and there's something in you that says, that's not right. And you have that because God gave you a moral compass, because he's moral. He's moral. There is right and wrong because there is a holy God and so in this story god made us god made the human race uniquely reflecting what he is like and uniquely capable of relationship with him and adam and eve enjoyed perfect relationship with god they were in harmony with one another it was the only perfect marriage that has ever existed was adam and eve prior to the fall and the married people said okay sort of proves the point doesn't it uh There might be enough in your marriage to lead you to Jesus if you would actually understand why it hurts so much. The only perfect marriage is Adam and Eve prior to the fall. And they were in harmony with creation. Creation met all of their needs. It was a bountiful, fruitful world that they lived in. And there was harmony between them and God. And so everything was perfect, it was paradise. It was paradise until we found in the story last week adam and eve with this moral capacity decided to rebel against god and in that rebellion not only did their spiritual hearts die but the whole creation in a sense died with them now the whole world set by god to be in harmony is disjointed it's wonky it doesn't work right Uh, We have tornadoes and hurricanes and we have uh, earthquakes and all the things where creation is groaning, the Bible says, not the way it was made to be. And the greatest example of that is that human beings who were made to have an eternal relationship with God, to have life in that relationship, now die as a result of sin. And again, is that hard to prove? Does the story explain realities we see around us? Yes, everybody dies. We go back to Genesis, and it says that's exactly what's going to happen. Everyone is going to die, and we die because of sin. That was the judgment of God upon sin, and so we see again in the story so perfectly reflecting the world that we live around us, where now we have sin everywhere, and there's murder and rape, and there's uh, thievery, and there's kidnapping, and there's disharmony and hatred and jealousy and bitterness, and on and on we go with what the world is like around us, and that's what the Bible said would be the, the world around us, because now the world is not in relationship with its creator, and we are not. And so we look in the world and we see disease and we see all the problems that we have in society and culture and injustices, and the story explains all of it. And that was the fall last week. And so mankind, after the fall, now left to try to derive some meaning apart from God. And human beings are not made to find meaning apart from God. But we try, and so we turn to these many other things that people think will make them ultimately happy and maybe it does temporarily but in the end what happens to all those temporary satisfactions they all go away right the law of diminishing returns and in the end it doesn't matter because we all die right now you're saying this is really a depressing message why did i come today you stop in genesis 3 and the story is a depressing story for sure but this all now leads us to an obscure little town in northern Israel, somewhere around four or five BC, somewhere in there. Leads us to this little village, and there was this young woman named Mary. And she's just doing life like all the other young girls did life. She was engaged to be married. That's what girls did then. That was just the culture of the day. Engaged to be married to this guy named Joseph. Everything seems normal. Until one day, an angel appears to her. So we have a supernatural appearance to Mary. And the angel has the most remarkable thing to say. Here's Luke 1, verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid. What do human beings think when an angel appears to them? I'm terrified, right? Especially 14-year-old girls. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I gave birth to my second daughter. Technically, Jennifer did, but we gave birth to my second daughter this week, and we think she's fantastic. We think she's wonderful. We think... Our two daughters are the best two that have ever been born in the history of mankind. But as high as we think these girls are, they're nothing compared to what this angel says this child's going to be. The son of the Most High, rule and reign on a throne forever. What kid does that, right? Who is this angel talking about? Well, this angel doesn't just appear to Mary, also appears to Joseph, because Joseph hears now that Mary's pregnant. He knows they've never been together sexually. He suspects, of course, what every man would. The angel appears to Joseph and says this, "'Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins.'" And the angel there is making a correlation between his name and his mission. His name is Jesus. Guess what Jesus means? Literally, Savior. You shall call him Savior because his mission is going to be to save people from their sins. And you just have to have a basic understanding of the story to know that sins is the problem all the way back from Genesis 3. Sin is the issue that is keeping us from a relationship with with God. And now the angel comes and declares there's somebody coming who is going to take care of that ancient issue that has created all these problems. And you're going to call him Jesus because even his name is going to say why he came. God's coming to the rescue, God is coming to the rescue. And if we really saw it clearly early on, we should have known that a God of love would do something like this. In fact, it's even hinted early on. One commentator pointed this out to me, and I just thought, I've never thought of it this way. If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. And the text says, right after that, that God came and he called out to the man. This is Genesis 3, 9. He said, where are you where are you the God creator most high God calling out to a lost mankind and we hear in his heart a desire for reconciliation a desire for relationship Adam where are you where are you did God know that Adam had sinned at that point Of course he did. And yet we see the heart of God for mankind reaching out to him. This is the love of God. It is a theme throughout the entire Bible that God continues to love sinners and desires to be reconciled with them. This love of God, we see it throughout Scripture. John 3.16, "...for God so loved the world." Here's Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, First John summarizes God this way, God is love. And it was the love of God that compelled God to rescue mankind, to send a rescue. And as you read through the Bible, there are all kinds of hints that this is exactly what God is intending to do. In fact, the whole Old Testament, broadly speaking, is one giant hinting expression from God that I intend to rescue all of these sinners. I am sending a rescue party. You say, well, what are you talking about? You read through the Old Testament and we see covenantal relationships with individuals like Noah and Abraham, Moses and David. God actually enters into a covenantal relationship with sinners. We have the whole tabernacle and the temple which itself a physical building reflecting a spiritual reality that God is willing to come again and dwell in the midst of sinners. We have sacrifices, that those lambs and the bulls and the goats all that we see in the Levitical system in the Old Testament hinting that there is a way that sins can be atoned for, that sins can be forgiven. We go ahead to like the judges, these judges that God sent heroes that came to save his people from the consequences of their sin. There's priests throughout the whole Old Testament, and a priest was somebody who stood as a mediator between God and man, a hint that maybe there is somebody that can do that. We have kings, leaders of God's people. We have prophets and prophecies talking about a Messiah, somebody that's going to come. Here's a really clear one, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed. We support a ministry in our church that ministers to Jews around the world. And oftentimes, they just sit on the street corner, they read Isaiah 53, and they say to Jews, they say, who's Isaiah talking about? And that's really the question. Who can bear our transgressions? What do you mean there's somebody that can bear somebody else's sin and guilt like that's a whole concept it's a hint it's a foreshadowing of a way that somehow the thing that was the problem in genesis 3 could be dealt with and again back in chapter 2 why did this whole thing go down why do you experience the pain in your life that you why are you going to die it is sin sin is the issue and the prophet says there's somebody that's coming that's going to heal our wounds. And we think to ourselves, who's that talking about? Or the angel comes to Mary and makes this incredible declaration that she is going as a virgin to, be, to give birth to somebody who will simultaneously be her son and the son of the most high God. Who could be that? Or who could that be, I should say? There's a Yoda. <laughs> who could that be? be and the angel then says well you can call him jesus because after all the whole reason he's coming is to save people from their sins and the story of jesus dominates the story from that point on all of the gospels matthew mark luke and john Tell us the story of his life, his death, the rest of the epistles, and all that through the New Testament, explaining the consequence, the uh, the implications for what Jesus has done. In a sense, you could say the whole Old Testament, looking forward to the cross, everything after the cross, looking back to the cross. Broadly, is the story. But this man Jesus, that was born indeed of Mary in Bethlehem, and that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas time. Eventually settled back in Nazareth, that little town that the angel came to Mary in the first place to. And he grew up, and we know very little about him as he grew up, presumably grew up like every other Jewish boy did at that time. But let's ask this question. If God actually walked on earth, like, what would you expect if God showed up here? Like, what would it be like if god actually walked around here. the the supernatural god who created everything like what would you think if god showed up it would be like well i would suppose one of the things that if a supernatural god showed up we would see evidences of his supernatural power doesn't that seem to make sense and so we look at the life of jesus And you know what we find throughout his public ministry especially is over and over and over and over and over again, he did what our scientists and all of the brainy people that we know can't do. He did the supernatural. Now, how many times, how many evidences of that would he need to do in order to sort of show that he is himself supernatural? One really good one would do it, don't you think? But he did many supernatural miracles and I don't know if we got it on the slide or not but I have a list here I'm not going to read all of these of all of the miracles that Jesus did over and over and over again we're not talking about the kind where suddenly you know somebody sort of hurts and like oh it feels better now we're talking about people whose limbs are are uh, uh, curled now suddenly working fine people that uh, had that were dead, now alive again, storms threatening to swamp the boat, suddenly calmed. It's not just sort of medicinally he was good. It was like, you know, meteorologically he was good. Every level of power that you would expect God to show, he showed exactly like God showed up here. It was almost like God showed up here with all of these supernatural miracles. Well, what else would you expect if God showed up? Well, we go back in the story. What, was Satan, what did Satan tell Adam and Eve? Lies. He deceived Adam and Eve, and it brought all of the destruction that we have in this world. You would expect then, if God is the opposite of Satan, if God showed up, he would be somebody that would tell the truth. And what do we find with Jesus? He was a great teacher. In a day when you couldn't get in your car and like drive miles to go let's honey you know let's do a day trip today let's get in our car let's go the 40 miles and let's go hear this jesus guy you couldn't do that you had to walk you had to walk and even with a walking society Thousands of people showed up when Jesus would teach. And the testimony of his teaching is this, John 7, 46. No one has ever spoken the way this man does. Nobody ever heard anything like it. To this day, the teaching of Jesus functions in our society as a a moral code. Quoted often by everybody. Why? Because no one's ever talked like Jesus did. True speaker. And you know one of the main themes of Jesus' teaching that he went to over and over again? Something that was lost being found. Specifically, he would tell what were known as parables. There's one particular section of scripture where there's three uh, parables in a row about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And the one with the son I think connects mostly with us because maybe you know we have loved ones that are kind of living this out but the story of the lost son goes like this that there was a father and there was he had two sons and the youngest of those two sons says to his dad long before dad's dead hey I want my money and I want it now. And dad, for whatever reason, says, okay, I will allow you to take your inheritance. Here you go. And that son does not remain in relationship with dad. He takes off for a far country and says, I got money in my pocket. I'm going to go have myself a good time. He goes into that far country, and the Bible, the story that Jesus tells is that he wastes the money in immoral living. So this is like partying, prostitutes, you name it, this is what this guy was doing. All of dad's hard-earned money, he's blowing it. Leaving him eventually destitute because he ran out of money. And he's working one of the most sort of embarrassing and menial jobs of the day. And there he is feeding the pigs and it dawns on him, what am I doing here? Even the servants in my father's house are better cared for than I am here feeding these pigs. Maybe dad will take me back. And so that son walks the long walk all the way back to dad's house. And the text tells us that dad looks out and off in the distance, he sees his son coming toward the house. Now, I don't know how like, old bitternesses and things like that have maybe worked in your family. But you would expect maybe a father who the son took the money, maybe he got reports about how he was living and how he was wasting and just his lifestyle and all of that. You would think that maybe the dad would be like, oh, great, here he comes. Need some more money? But that's not the father as Jesus tells the story. The father sees him coming, runs to him, embraces him, puts new clothes on him throws a party for him, and says, my son was lost, but now he is found. Why was that one of the big themes that Jesus would go to over and over and over again? It is because of what the angel said his mission was. His name is Jesus, and he is going to save his people from their sins. What was lost is about to be found again. There is a way for the son to be returned to the father, the coin to the woman, the sheep to the shepherd. God is about finding lost things and restoring them. And Jesus' mission was to come and to make that possible. Which leads us then to how he did it. How did God accomplish this rescue? And this is no small feat, right? If you think about what God had to do in order to restore a relationship with a rebellious human race that itself cannot, it cannot, I'm saying this wrong, on our side, if it was dependent on us, there's nothing that we could do in order to restore this. This was utterly dependent on God sending the rescue. That's what I meant to say, okay? How is God going to do it? Well, the story of Jesus reaches its climax in one particular week. We call it the Passion Week of Jesus. We celebrate it at Easter. And in that one week, Jesus there in Jerusalem teaching, doing miracles, the religious leaders of the day hating him, jealous of him. They want him out. They don't realize that all of this is fulfilling God's plan. They don't know the story that we're talking about. They're focused on their hatred of Jesus. And so they lead then through manipulation and political maneuvering through Pilate and all the rest. They maneuver Jesus into a place where he is crucified on a cross. Now, Jesus knew this was going to happen, and the Bible is very clear that he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. Now you say, well, how can he have allowed himself to be crucified? I mean, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is he is God. God only dies when God wants to die. And no Roman governor has any power over God. This was a willing sacrifice. The Bible makes that clear. When Jesus died, he did so willingly. You say, well, why would somebody willingly die for somebody else? And we see little glimpses of that even in our society. When somebody like the football player I saw this week stood in front of the gun and took the bullets in a shooting this week, why would somebody do that? Or we think about a firefighter or somebody uh, like that who is giving themselves for somebody else. We see that as being so incredibly noble, don't we? We have monuments with their names on it, and we celebrate that, and we honor that, and we ought to. But the reason that we honor it is it is an echo and a reflection of what God did in coming into this world and dying in our place for love. For love. Greater love as no man than this. The Bible says that a man lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus was the best friend you've ever had. Okay? He came into this world and he died for love. He willingly gave his life, dying in our place. And you say, Well, okay, that's the story, but what does it mean? And that's one of the great things about the Bible is not only do we have the events, but we have interpretation. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that God was making a way for him to remain holy God because he is moral, and the one who can declare the sinner also to be holy. Now, what do you mean by that? This is the cross of Jesus. Because Jesus never sinned, that Genesis 3, judgment of death upon mankind did not apply to him because he had never sinned. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but if you've never sinned, you don't get the wage of death. And so it qualified Jesus, therefore, to, be, to, to willingly die for somebody else. And when he died, the Bible says that he didn't just die for somebody else, He died for all those who would believe in him. He died for us. He died in our place. And so God now, having this death, satisfying the curse, is free now to forgive the sins of those who put their faith and their trust in his son. And that's what it means. That's what it means. The Bible calls this redemption. To redeem something is to, is to buy it back, right? If you take something valuable at your house and you need a little cash, so you go down to the antique shop or something like that, you say, hey, how much will you give, this, give me for this? And they give you a number and you sell it. But then you get home and you get thinking to yourself, you know what? That was a foolish thing to take my wife's wedding ring down there. <laughs> I better go back and make this right. And so you go back to the shop and you pay whatever price now is required. That is to, that's what it means to redeem something. You're, you're buying it back. And God buys us back with Called the ransom, this redemptive payment that Jesus made on the cross. And the Bible tells us that not only are we back with God by faith, but we are back and better. Back and better. Why? Because the work that God does in the sinner's heart and life doesn't simply buy him or her back, but it restores us in every way to what Adam and Eve enjoyed prior to the fall. We are sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into His family. We are guaranteed to experience His love forever and his life forever that's known as eternal life and the consequences of sin the eternal ones no longer apply to us it's almost as if forever the curse never happened why because we live forever we live forever listen to this summary of the story it's the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's not just that basically what I'm saying to you today. The rescue that God has sent, motivated by love, and conditioned on something. That verse summarizes this here because you could say to yourself, wow, great, Jesus died and we're all gonna go to heaven and all of that. No, the same Bible that tells us this story also tells us that there is a condition for those who are under the rescue and those who are not. And that condition in John 3, 16 is that you must believe. You have to believe in Jesus as your Savior in order for all of those benefits to be true for you. So this belief thing is really an important thing. And it will be for each of us forever. And so as we watch that video, we've been using this video to kind of tell the story. I don't know if you saw, the last image that we had there was of the ocean, right? Sunset and the ocean. And on on the ocean is floating this life preserver. And so I've had this life preserver up here, and you've been looking at that, and some of you are like, I think I know what he's going to do with that. But look at this life preserver. This is actually Bethel Church's life preserver. We bought it when we bought the Boys and Girls Club. There was a pool in our facility in downtown Gary, and they had life preservers there, and I rather like this one because this looks to me like one that's saved a few people over the years, right? This is a well-used life preserver. You don't want to, you know, never trust a skinny chef and never trust a life preserver that looks like it hasn't saved anybody. So here we have this, uh, this old life preserver. I think you understand how life preservers work. If somebody is drowning, they're in a desperate situation, right? They potentially could die they're reaching, they call that the death grip, right? When they can, anything they can grab, you hear stories. I remember even an NFL running back tried to save this little girl one time that was, that was drowning and she got a hold of him. He could, he could not remove her grip and they both went down and they both died. NFL running back, okay? That grip, when, when, when you think you're going to die, you will grab and you will not let go. There is a strength there, okay? Okay? So a life preserver basically works like this. When somebody is drowning and they are, maybe they're treading water or maybe they're holding on to a branch in the raging river or whatever it might be, a life preserver is generally thrown to near that person. And if it's done well, here it comes floating up right next to them. The presence of a life preserver doesn't itself save anybody from drowning. Because the person who is drowning, holding on to that branch, has a decision that they have to make. Am I going to trust this branch, or am I going to grab on hold to this life preserver? And the smart ones (laughs) will let go of the little twig they're holding on to, and will grab on to... The life preserver. They transfer the death grip, the trust grip, from the branch to the life preserver. Now all of their hope for being saved is in this life preserver and its ability to save me. And I think it's a very wonderful picture of what faith actually is, what saving faith actually is. It is for a sinner who maybe has been trying to save themselves, like the guy in the water. No, I can make it. I'll be, I don't need the life preserver. I can do it myself. Or the person who's holding on to some other thing they think will be the thing that saves them, and yet the Bible says there is no salvation other than in the name of Jesus. So all of that is a deception when people are holding on to these other things. They can't, they won't save them. There is only one person, one name under heaven whereby men might be saved, and it is the name and the work and the benefits that come by faith to us through Jesus Christ. And so God essentially floats the life preserver into this world and into our life. And if you're here right now, I can tell you, in this message, God is floating a life preserver right next to your soul. And the question is, who or what are you believing and trusting in? Everybody has something, right? Everybody has to have something they think is the thing that brings meaning into their life. What are you trusting in? What do you think will ultimately answer the questions and the longings and the yearnings of your heart? Jesus flo- or God floats the life preserver the person and the work of Jesus up next to the soul of the sinner and says, grab on to this. Believe that Jesus will save you. Transfer your trust from the, tri- the twig or yourself to the saving work and the benefits that come with Jesus Christ. And trust and believe. And that is what saving faith is like it is to put your hope and your 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 all those fears all those wonderings to say i believe that jesus is the son of god i believe that he was aptly named savior because he is a savior of people from their sins i believe That if God came into this world, he would perform miracles and he would say things that nobody could believe. And I believe that if man tried to kill God, that man would not be dead forever. He could not be dead forever. Why? Because he has the life of God. I believe that he was resurrected from the dead. I believe the whole thing. And that is how God's rescue, God's story, becomes your story. That's how God's rescue becomes your rescue. Because God is love. And He has not abandoned you to eternal destruction, but has sent a rescue. And here we are at Christmas time, singing songs in other languages. (laughs) You know, it's so good we can sing songs in other languages and we love it, right? Why? Because if God really came to this world, it means that God really wants to rescue. And the question that I have for you today, friend, is, have you put your trust in God's rescue for you? Is your faith and your hope, are you clinging to Jesus? Have you let go of the other thing? And put all your hope and your trust in him. My old mentor Kimber used to say, if Jesus goes to hell, I'm going with him. Why? Because I'm holding on to him with everything I have. And the good news is he went, to, he went there to declare victory. <laughs> he is ruling and reigning. He's at the right hand of God right now. And there is life in his name. There is life in his name. And dear friend, I just, I just urge you, to consider what is right next to your soul. Even right now, in this moment, this could be God's grace to you to put you right here in this service to hear this one saving message and for you to put your faith and your trust in Christ. I'd like to pray to that end. So could we bow our heads a moment? And I'm gonna give you just a moment to just look into your soul and to ask the question, where's my hope lie? Who am I trusting in? And is the story of God a story that I want to embrace and to believe? You can do it today. You can do it right now. Cry out to God and God will save you. He wants to. He loves you.